love our kids, excited about what's going to be happening. They may or may not have more sugar in them by the time we give them back to you tonight, of which we cannot be responsible. We had a great time for the uh, guys' night out last night. Come on. We went to the hockey game. The Norfolk Admirals continued their win streak, which we were excited for because that would have been terrible if they had had their first loss on the night that our church showed up for that game. So I think 24, 24 wins in a row. It's the longest record in the history of that league, I think the American Hockey League. So, And there were two fights. Yes. I have two boys, 11 and 9, and that's all that they wanted to know. Dad, will there or will there not be a fight in this hockey game? So I explained to them, hockey is really a conflict continually waiting for a fight to break out. And when the fight's over, it just settles back into another conflict waiting for another fight to happen. So I was thinking about the Masters, right? Any golfers in here? Masters is this weekend. That if there was fighting in golf, I would watch it more. <laughs> right? Come on. Would you tune in? Would You would tune in a little bit more. There, it's still golf, so there have to be some decorum, right? So Tiger says to Phil, did you just call me a shankopotamus? Did you just call? Right? In hockey, they throw their gloves off. They can't do that in golf. To pull it off a finger at a time, and then the announcer would say, if there could be quiet in the tee box, fisticuffs are about to commence. I would be watching the Masters. That's not going to happen, so I'm not going to be. Favorite Easter candy? Anybody have any? Come on, we like participation, so this is what we're going to do tonight. I've got two. We're up in the ante because it's Easter weekend. They're $15, right? So now you can buy a whole drink at Starbucks. $15. I have two. So if your favorite Easter candy, I have two favorite Easter candies. If your favorite is one of my two, then you get one of these two. You tracking? All right. Okay. Jim? Chocolate buttercream egg. That sounds delicious, but that's not mine. April? Robin eggs. That's not it? Cadbury chocolate. That's Christie's, isn't it? The Cadbury with the goop in the goop in the inside. We call it goop at our house. Let's, let's come over here just to be fair. Come over here. Bernie? Stale frozen peeps, because that's what you like, yes? And she got those for our kids last year, which was great, but that's not it. Let's work our way into the back. Yes, ma'am, young lady? Reese cups, no. Somebody else? Danette? Skittles, not Skittles? Baby Ruth? Chocolate marshmallows? Peanut and M&Ms? All right, let's keep going on. Let's go on over. Maybe, no, maybe I'm going to get to keep these Starbucks gift cards for myself. Coconut cream eggs. Coconut cream eggs, maybe. Jelly beans. All right, we're going to give it to her on jelly bean. We're going to give it to her. But she gets bragging rights if she gets to pick the flavor. Any takers? Licorice. Who said it? Yeah, she gets it anyways. I know. I like the licorice. Any other people like licorice jelly beans? Yeah. All right, I have one other favorite. Anybody got any, any takers? Yes. Sweet tarts, not sweet tarts. It's good to see you guys. Yeah. Solid chocolate bunny rabbit. It is chocolate, but it's not the solid chocolate bunny rabbit. There's a certain kind of chocolate. you got to be precise here. Dove dark chocolate. That's not it. The orange chocolate ball. Come on. Come on. Was there cheating going on up here? There was cheating in the church. That's terrible. That is terrible. All right. I say we give it. Right here, first time with the new baby in the church. Is it first time? 
Second time, new baby. Come on. And the baby is sleeping, so we're going to preach like this for the rest of the night, right? It's good to have you with us at the City Life Church. Well, candy is one of my favorite memories growing up. Obviously, my mom, right, would make these Easter baskets that would make our dentist cringe if he ever saw them. But, but after we would get our Easter baskets, one of my most cherished childhood memories as a little boy is that we would go outside and we would go into my mother's gardens. And I would hold her hand and we would walk through the gardens at our house and we would begin to gather up bunches of daffodils. I grew up in this little uh, town called Verina. We went to a little country Episcopal church and on Easter Sunday morning, they didn't have the Saturday night revelation like we have. So on Easter Sunday morning, that we would, everyone would come with a little bunch of daffodils and we would take those daffodils and we would gather them together and we would take paper towels and they would be moistened and then they would be tinfoil, right, wrapped around that because you couldn't get water on your nice little Easter outfit. And everybody would come to church with these beautiful little bundles of daffodils. And I happened to be reminiscing on that story just a couple of weeks ago. And, and, and as I was doing that, I felt like God spoke to me about what we were supposed to talk about. In that moment of reminiscing on that story, I felt like God whispered to my heart and he said, I want you to talk about Jesus in his gardens. So tonight's message this weekend's message is his gardens and we're going to find Jesus in three of his gardens. This Easter weekend, not only are we celebrating what he did, but where it happened. When Jesus raised himself from the dead, he was saying to us, remember me in my gardens. We believe at the City Life Church that the sovereign creator of the universe is helplessly intentional. Now, you might not like the word helpless in connection with a sovereign God, but you'll warm up to it because you want him to be helpless. You want him to be helplessly perfect. You want him to be helplessly holy. You want him to be helpless when it comes to having your best interest and my best interest at heart. You want him to helplessly be everywhere all the time. There's lots of things that God cannot do. He cannot make mistakes. He is helplessly perfect, and he is absolutely helplessly intentional. Everything that he chose to put in the Bible is instructive for you and I. And it is not an accident, as we see tonight, that Jesus' last moments on this earth, when he came out of the tomb, that he was in a garden. And I believe that was intentional by God. It was part of his plan because he wanted to say to the world, remember me and my other garden moments here in this universe. And we're going to see that there's three that we find him in, there's three gardens, and in each one of those gardens, he's going to call out to you. We believe in a living word, and when we dig into it, we encounter a living Christ who has a living voice. I've never heard the voice of God, but I say that I feel that voice. And maybe some of you tonight, this Easter weekend, come on of 2012, that you are going to feel the voice of God deep inside of your heart. We're going to find him in these three gardens, and in each one of those places, he does something unique. And in each garden, he's doing something different. In each garden, he's doing something specific. And as we observe Christ in this story, I'm telling you, you're going to have an experience where you feel like he turns to you, he's going to say your name, and then he's got some calls that he's going to give to us. And how many of you know when Jesus speaks to us, there's always a decision that comes with it? As we find Jesus in his gardens, we hear who he beckons us to be. 
Okay, the first one, we're going to talk about how he's a creator. I got some signs up here. Come on, go Tyler Ashworth, hooking me up. All right. Be a creator. We find Jesus in the Garden of Eden. Did you know that? Jesus was in the Garden of Eden. Maybe you're, maybe you're thinking to yourself, I don't think he was in the Garden because he wasn't born for a long time later. But what we believe about Jesus, which sets him apart from any other religious leader, is that he was in heaven before he came to this earth. Every single one of us, our life began at a moment of conception. We did not exist, and now we do exist, not so with Jesus. He was in heaven before he came to earth. And that's part of what the Gospel of John begins to set out for us in the first chapter, verses 1 through 3. It says, in the beginning... The word already existed, and John is using the Greek word logos to refer to Jesus. He's the full expression of God, is what he's saying. The word was with God, and the word was God. Listen to what he says. He existed in the beginning. Now, that's an important phrase, right? He's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, and everybody knows how the Bible starts. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you know it starts out with this wonderful phrase, right? In the beginning. And so right here, John is saying, hey, I'm talking about Jesus being in the beginning of time before all this world came into existence. God created everything through him, referring to Jesus, and nothing was created except through him. And so our curiosity should peak and we should jump over, right? We should take a left turn in our Bible and scroll all the way through and we get to the story of creation. We get to Genesis chapter 1 and as you keep reading, you'll get to verse 26 and there, there's an important phrase for us as Christ followers. It says that God says, let us make man in our image. He doesn't say, let me make man in my image. He says, let us make man in our our image. And we believe that there he's talking to the Son and he's talking to the Holy Spirit. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there they are in the beginning of creation. Any takers, what day is it? Come on, it's day six in the creation story. All of the things that they created to make this universe something of wonder and awe. His best work was about to get started. He says, let us make man Come on, let us make woman in our image. We find Jesus at the moment of the creation of the world and especially the moment of creation of all humanity. And as we continue to look into this story, we find that as you read it, that there's a phrase that keeps being repeated over and over and over again. In fact, it's repeated on nine different occasions, and it's the phrase, and God said. It doesn't say, and God did. It doesn't say, and God endeavored. It doesn't say that, and God worked. It says that God said. That everything that exists in this world, it exists because he spoke it into existence. Through his spoken word, something that was not became tangible. It became real. It had a reality simply through a spoken word. And you might be here tonight, and maybe you've read that story before, and you've thought to yourself, that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? I know for me, I would terribly misuse that gift, right? It would often involve Krispy Kreme donuts, right? And Dunkin' Donuts coffee. If they could just get together, Dunkin' Donuts coffee and Krispy Kreme donuts, it would be a marriage made in heaven. What would you create if you had the power to create? Come on, if, if you had the power to say anything that you wanted to say, and it was there, 
What would you do? What would you do with that kind of power? I would say to you tonight, you don't have to wonder. Not that you can create things that are tangible, but I would suggest to you tonight that God has endowed you with a power to create things in this world that are far more valuable than anything tangible that you could ever create. Even if you could amass through your spoken word all the riches, all the wealth of all the world, Jesus said, come on, heaven and earth will one day pass away. And everything that's in it, everything that's tangible. But then he says, but what? My words will never pass away. There is something about words that set them apart from anything else in this universe. And I believe that part of this Easter weekend that Jesus is saying to you and to me, remember me in the Garden of Eden because you're supposed to remember a power that he's given to you. He has given you the power to create feelings in the hearts of other people through the words that come out of your mouth and out of my mouth. He says to you, what are you creating? We read him in the story, and he's creating the universe, and he looks at you and says, okay, now what are you going to create? This is what I've created. I've created a world for you to exist in. Now what are you going to create? What are you going to do with the power that's been entrusted to you? So what if... Throughout your whole life, you didn't know it, but we've been following you around. I know. It could have happened. We've been following you around, and we have chronicled the story of your life just like the story of creation has been chronicled for us in the beginning of Genesis. And what if, through chronicling your life, we had recorded every he said, she said moment? Every fill in the blank for you. What if we, what if we could just push play right now and we could just... I'll sit down and we could just watch it right on the screen. I hope all of you would be running for the door because I would be right ahead of you. I would go at this one right here because I know that one's unlocked. You tracking? What would you have said? What would be your he said? What would be your she said? What would be the fill in the blanks? Every opportunity that you had to speak life into someone else. And I'm not just talking about the things that you said that you shouldn't have. Come on, dads. Come on, moms. What about all the moments where we just didn't say anything? That you just left your power to create on the shelf. Proverbs 18, 21. Solomon lays it out for us. The power of life and death is in the tongue. The tongue that God created. The tongue that he put in your mouth. The tongue that he put into my mouth. And then when Jesus was walking upon this earth in Matthew chapter 12, 34 to 37, many of you are familiar with this verse. It says that out of the overflow of a person's heart, their mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of a person's heart, their mouth speaks. But that's the one that gets all the attention. But if you continue to read, as we should, come on, we should always be continuing to read in Scripture. We get closer to verse 37, and Jesus says that we are going to have to give account for every word that we spoke when we lived on this earth. Every word out of the overflow of a person's heart, their mouth will speak, and then Jesus says one day, when we stand before God on the day of every word that we spoke out of our mouth, we're going to have to give account for it. Makes us a little nervous, doesn't it? It doesn't have to because that's the beauty of this weekend. What your story has been doesn't have to be what it's going to do. You can have a different story. What if, what if it wasn't just your story that we chronicled? What if it was chronicling the story of your spouse? 
What if it was chronicling the story of your children? What if it was chronicling the story of all the people that report to you, all the students that are in your classroom? And, and in recording their story, come on, we heard you speaking into their life. What if it, we shifted it from the he said, she said to they heard? You tracking? It begins to change our perspective a little bit when we think about, yeah, I shouldn't have spoken that word. But when we take it from the perspective of the child that heard it, it makes our heart sink all the more. What, what, if, what if we rented the Hampton Coliseum and we took the caseload of every licensed Christian counselor here in this region and we gathered all of those people into that room, into the Hampton Coliseum at one time and supernaturally somehow God enabled us to go back into the story of all of their lives and rewrite, overwrite every moment where a harsh, demeaning, destructive word was spoken over them, every silent word that should have been spoken that wasn't, that would have been life-giving, and we were able to add that in, do you think those people would leave any different? They would leave transformed. And all of those counselors would be working at Starbucks taking your gift card on Monday. You and I are called to be creators through the words that we speak to create hope and life and joy into the hearts of every person that we touch every day of our lives. I'm going to tell you a story about Ben Facile. This is a family that's been coming to our church for several months now. We had dinner with Ben's parents this week. It's a dangerous thing, right? When you're writing a sermon to talk to the pastor, I said, oh, Doug, I, I've got it. you've got to let me tell that story. So that night, he stayed up late, and he wrote this story for me, and I'm going to share it with you now. Ben was one of those boys who would have easily been labeled with a learning disability, and at five years old, he was not ready to fit neatly into the educational box. Our parental instinct kicked in, and God encouraged our family to homeschool. During this season in my naval career, I was able to bring him to my workplace. The diving Navy, he's a diver for the Navy, the diving Navy was a great place for him to explore and learn outside of the classroom. At eight years old, Ben shared that God had told him he was going to attend the Naval Academy. Come on, your kids can feel the voice of God. Believe it. Our family was preparing for a three-year Middle East tour when God impressed on our hearts to take Ben to the Naval Academy so he could see it before we left America. Doug and Chrissy still look just like that today. This was a very emotional visit for us as parents. Ben seemed very cool about the whole thing. I guess when you know God told you that you would do something in the future, you should just be cool and confident about it. Fast forward to Ben's senior year in high school in Hampton, Virginia. Ben did everything that he could to prepare the best acceptance package possible, but his SATs were not up to the academy standard. And so Ben ran track in high school. He went to states two years standing. In addition to being the best student he could, he just didn't have the SATs, and he did not get accepted. Come on, he's been dreaming about this since he was eight years old. Ben had a pile of letters from other colleges and universities wanting him to run track for their schools. I asked Ben, hey, what's your bump plan? I, I've learned a new word. That's cool, isn't it? What's your bump plan? It's just called it Plan B. What's your bump plan? What school is your second choice? He told me, Dad, I'm going to the Naval Academy. 
once again, I had to tell my son, Ben, you, you didn't get accepted. What, what are you going to do? He told me again, Dad, I'm, I'm going to the Naval Academy. The deadline for Academy packages was ending, and Ben still had not received an acceptance letter. So I came home from work and told Ben, get your NJROTC. I don't think that's an abbreviation for a bad word. I think that's a uniform of some sorts. Uniform on, we're going to the Academy. This is a father that understands what we're talking about tonight. Come on. We're going to the Academy. I brought him to the admissions, and they brought up his profile and told him, we are sorry but you didn't get accepted, which was a nice way of saying you really shouldn't be here, right? The receptionist is pushing that little buzzer underneath the desk, right, for security. You really, he didn't get accepted. At the same time, a young officer was walking by and overheard the conversation, and he asked Ben, hey, what sport do you do? Could tell that he was an athlete. Ben told him track, and the officer asked a few other questions and told us to go see the track coach. Ben and I went to see the coach, and the coach was out, but the track recruiter was in. The recruiter began to ask Ben questions about his track record, and at the same time, he was online looking at Ben's record to make sure he was telling the truth. And as the recruiter saw that Ben was telling the truth, he told Ben that this was a military academy, and star athletes usually quit when they realize the Naval Academy's academic and leadership program and how difficult it is. Ben's response, you don't understand, sir. I've dreamed of attending the Naval Academy since I was eight years old, and Ben just began to pour out his heart to that recruiter. The recruiter picks up the phone. I kid you not, this is a true story. The recruiter picks up the phone. He calls the Academy Admissions Office, and he tells them to prepare a package for Ben to attend the Naval Academy Prep School. Ben will be a lieutenant junior grade this coming May and will celebrate his second wedding anniversary the first week of June. Ben is not yet the chief of naval operations or the president of the United States, but he could be. Come on, you're tracking? This is Ben right here at the front of that line, graduating from the Naval Academy. All the moments in Ben's life, his parents could have said, Ben, you're not going to amount to anything. Ben, you don't have what it takes. All the moments in Ben's life where his parents, especially when they began to realize he didn't quite measure up to the academic standard, he believed that God had whispered to his heart and his parents said, come on, we are going to speak life into this little boy's dream who's now a young man. I'm just asking you tonight, the people that are in your life, what are you creating in their heart through the words that you speak? You cannot give them a destiny. Only God can give that. But you better believe you have the power to create in their heart the hope that they need to see that destiny fulfilled. Be a creator. Be a creator. All right, come on. Number two. Have a cause. Have a cause. We find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the second garden. He starts out in Eden, and as the, the story of Scripture continues to play out, as we're reading through the Bible, we get to the Gospels, and we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we find that at the end of Jesus' life, he's about 33 years old, we find him here in the place called Gethsemane. We know that because in John 18, 1, it says, after Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. If you're looking at a map, you've got Jerusalem and the Kidron Valley is just to the east. And as you cross the Kidron Valley, you begin to go up in a sloped area and that's where the Garden of Gethsemane was. And we know as we study the Gospels, it was a favorite place for Jesus to go and to pray. 
So it says across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to read this one together. Matthew 26, we're going to start in verse 36. Verse 36, it says, Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. And he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John. This is the New Living Translation. We're reading out of this one for a reason. We'll get to in just a minute. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he began, he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he turned to his disciples and he found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you just watch with me one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not be, you not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And then Jesus left him a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 43, when he returned to them again, he found them sleeping. Come on, it's exactly what all of us have been, would have been doing. Don't judge. He found them sleeping for they could not keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time saying the same thing again. Then he came to his disciples. Now listen to this. It changes here what Jesus says. The New Living Translation captures this from the original language better than any other, other translation. Then he came to his disciples and he said, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't give them a hard time. He says, you know what? Sleep. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed and into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. When we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we find him wrestling with the cause that he had been given by his Father. The cause of Jesus is to save the world. The cause of Jesus is to save the world. Come on, John 3.17. Many of us are familiar with John 3.16, but as we keep reading, we find this beautiful verse that says, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. It was his cause. It was his reason for coming. And as we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane wrestling with his cause, he turns to you, he turns to me, he looks at us, and he says, I'm saving the world. What are you doing? He looks at you, and he says, what's your cause? What's the cause that when you wake up every day, you say, I know that God put me on this earth to do fill in the blank. As we find Jesus come on in his gardens, we hear who he beckons us to be. You were born with a cause to fulfill with the life that you've been given. Jesus has caused to save the world. Anybody here ever had an argument with somebody and you feel a little distant from them afterwards? Husbands all say no, no. I never feel distanced from my wives get to answer that question. Yes, husbands take notes. We say no to that. Every person in this room has been in a conflict with someone and felt a little distant from them, right? That's why in hockey they go to separate penalty boxes. For some of you in this room, you've had a conflict with people. It, it could be people that are very dear to you. And the relationship because of that conflict is completely fractured to the point you're not even in relationship with him anymore. When you and I were born into this world, we entered into a conflict with God. 
not because of anything that he's done. See, some of you have been in conflicts with people and you're completely innocent. That doesn't happen often, but sometimes we're completely innocent and it's because of the pride of the other person and their unwillingness to ask forgiveness that the relationship is not able to move forward. Some of you, if we had you come up and we handed you the microphone, you'd, most of you would be able to tell stories just like that. That's God's story. There's nothing that he's done. He's helplessly perfect. But from the moment you and I were born, our humanity entered into a conflict with his divinity, the selfishness of our heart, and we have lived our lives doing the things that we shouldn't and not doing the things that we should. The Bible calls that sin. It separates us from God, and that's what Jesus' cause is all about. He says, I can help you with that. He says, I can help you with that. He's the bridge that makes it possible for you and I to be reconciled with God. I love the moment in worship when Celeste was up there. Come on, tears falling from her eyes. If you've been a part of this church for any amount of time, you know a little bit about her story. Come on, she's experienced the grace of God. Many of you in this room, you've experienced the grace of God. You wake up every day having a sense of knowing God is your best and closest friend and there was nothing that you could do to earn it. It's only because Jesus died on the cross for you and me. He died for our sins so that he could look at you and I and say, you're forgiven. Come on, live your life with your father. It's his cause. He looks at you and he says, okay, now what's yours going to be? Not only when we get to heaven are we going to have to give an account for every word that we speak, we give an account for the life that we lived. And may it be that none of us would stand there before God on that day and say, you know what, I just never figured mine out. Every person in this room, Jesus looks at you and says, you have been given a cause. Live your life for something that's bigger than yourself. Come on, I just threw this list together this week. Think of all the other things that could be on there. But abortion, social justice, human trafficking, public service, addiction, orphans, the mentally challenged, the physically challenged, the local church, hunger, poverty, homelessness, the incarcerated, abuse, world missions, illiteracy, disease, family values, politics, sexual confusion, education, environment. Come on, that list could keep going. Is there one on there that stirs your heart? Because you were created to have a cause. As you find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane wrestling with the cause that God has given him, there should be something inside of us that says, I want to wrestle with a cause in the same way. And as we look at the life of Jesus, we learn about causes. We learn that oftentimes they're seasonal. Did you know that Jesus, he, he lived on this earth for about 33 years. He didn't begin to fulfill his cause until he was 33 years old. Not because he was a procrastinator. Come on. Because there was a season for the fulfillment of the cause that he had been given. Causes sometimes have seasons. Vanessa and I and our family, we lived in the inner city of Richmond for 10 years. For a decade, we poured out our lives to help revitalize a crime-ridden, poverty-stricken neighborhood. Getting involved in the lives of children and their, and their families. Come on, we got to see one family. Their oldest daughter was the first one to ever graduate from high school and went on to graduate from college. Come on, what's your cause? But that had a season. That's not our season anymore. Come on, our season now is this region. It's a cause that overlaps with many of your causes as we endeavor to build this church. Heaven now. Come on, heaven forever. Just, come on, was that not great? The beginning of the service, Nate Nawat and his team have been working hard launching that new logo. We have a cause as a church. We're going to reach the undevoted and the disconnected and the discipled. And many of you are saying, hey, what? I think that's supposed to be part of my cause. But for some of you, even though you might be involved in this church, 
Come on, everybody has a cause, but the local church is everybody's calling. Can I say that selfishly as a pastor? But it might not be your cause. It might be that one of these things is what causes your heart to stir. It's a powerful picture of Jesus wrestling with his cause in the Garden of Gethsemane. It tells us in the Gospels that he, he was under such duress that he began to sweat droplets of blood, which is a bona fide medical condition when you're under such duress that the capillaries beneath your skin begin to swell. They burst and it intermingles with the sweat as it passes through your pores. It takes an enormous amount of duress. Most of us will live our entire lives and never experience that kind of stress. Sometimes the cause that we're given, it's more than what we feel like we can handle. That's how we know that it's a cause, Right? If you wake up tomorrow and say, oh, I can do that, come on, it's something bigger than that. Causes have seasons. Causes are burdensome. And this is the other piece about causes that it's important. This is why we read the text out of the New Living Translation, because Jesus changes his tone of his conversation with his disciples, because I believe it's in there, it's recorded for us, because Jesus remembers that causes are deeply personal. He's frustrated with the disciples at first. Why? Because he's saying, hey, don't you realize that I'm about to save the world? Every sin that's ever been committed and ever going to be committed, I'm going to take the punishment. I'm going to die for those sins. He's frustrated because their heart's not stirring for the cause that he's been given. But it takes a turn, I believe, because I think in one of those moments of prayer, God says to the son, hey, this isn't their cause. This is your cause. And for some of you, you get irritated with other people. Because they're not as passionate about your cause as you are. Well, it's because it's not their cause. Right? Everybody has a cause. That's one of the things that makes the church a beautiful place is that we all come together. We celebrate other people running after their cause, but we don't expect them to fulfill our cause because it's the cause that we've been given. And yes, sometimes we find people that are just as passionate about causes that we have come on, and then we begin to work together to fulfill that same cause. But as you begin to give yourself to a cause, do not judge other people because they're not excited about what you're excited about. But there can be something inside of you that they look and see that's not my cause but I see the excitement that stirs their heart I want to live that same way and we trust that as you see Christ in the garden of Gethsemane something stirs in your heart tonight that says I want to have a cause yes it might be for a season yes it might be something that's more than what I think that I can bear it might be overwhelmingly burdensome yes and it's going to be deeply personal but God says to you come on have a cause that you can live for so I got this email the other week Right, sending emails is also dangerous. I always get permission, though, I promise. Mostly. I got permission for this one. So I just wanted to thank you for your obedience and reliance on God's God's in preparing tonight's sermon. Remember, we took a whole different turn last week if you we were here. It says, the last three days I attended a phenomenal global justice conference at Regent University where we were immersed in the topic of human trafficking. The speakers were amazing and their message is powerful. And after returning from such a great but also overwhelming, come on, it's burdensome, and pretty heavy conference this afternoon, I began to buy into what you referred to tonight. That was last weekend as the whisper or the temptation. I had a Moses moment and I started questioning how I could possibly tackle such a monumental and global issue such as human trafficking. I doubted how my skill set could be used to combat this tragedy, forgetting that God doesn't necessarily call the equipped. Come on, he equips the called. Tonight's word was exactly what I needed to hear to rebuke that whisper and to think I almost didn't go to church because I was at those conferences. 
Come on. So this young lady who's a part of our church, she's in our young adults life group. She's saying, hey, human trafficking is going to be a cause. I know that it's big. I know that I might get to the end of my days and look back and really have a hard time figuring out whether or not I made a difference or not. But that's not what it's about. What it's about is that you hear God stirring your heart for one of the things that's on the screen. And you say, I'm going to run after that thing with all of my heart. You have a cause that you're supposed to live for. When you get to the end of your days and you look back at the legacy that you've left, did you give your life for something that's bigger than yourself? We had the privilege of meeting a lady by the name of Nancy Hathaway. We're going to show a little three-minute clip of that in just a minute. But let me, let me read you this little story just to set it up. Nancy Hathaway lives in Williamsburg. Says, Nancy, wake up. We're almost here. My husband Steve shook me. I had just spent a fitful night with little sleep, only to finally doze off before dawn. The train compartment where we slept was hot and oppressive. Come on, a cause is burdensome. Between the heat and the shouts and the slamming of the doors at each station and my nervous stomach, I was wide awake. Instead, I laid there crying and praying, God, please let me know that you're guiding us. It was November of 2001, and we were on an overnight train from Kiev to Berdansk, a small seaside city in the southern Ukraine. It was a scene right out of Dr. Shivago. The snow and the ice outside, the smell of the coal and vinegar in the air, and the train compartment with leather seats and lace curtains, a brisk knock on the door, and a babushka brought in tea from the samovar in the hall. I lifted the lace curtain back and wiped the steam off the window as we pulled into the station. And there was a sea of gray faces with furry hats and coats swarming the platform. And as I look out, I had an overwhelming thought. Today, I'm going to meet someone who will be a part of our lives for the rest of our days. She will be our daughter. Her children will be our grandchildren. And right now, she lives here on the other side of the world in a strange and foreign place, we were on our way to adopt a little girl. Let's watch this together. Underneath, there's a man just to right, black 
bright red tie Too ashamed to tell his wife he's out of work He's buying time All those people go Give me your eyes for just one second Give me your eyes so I can see Everything that I keep missing Give me your love for humanity Give me your arms for the broken hearted The ones that are far beyond my reach Give me your heart for the ones forgotten Give me your eyes so I can see Yeah 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 Nancy Hathaway, she goes to adopt this little girl from the Ukraine. As she was there, she began to realize that once these orphans reach to be teenagers, they're, they're put out on the street and there's nothing there for them. Only 27% will find work. 30% will become addicted to drugs. Listen to this. 60% of the girls return to prostitution. 70% of the boys will turn to crime. 15% will commit suicide. 15% will commit suicide. And you know what God whispered to Nancy Hathaway's heart? This is your cause. That might not be your cause, but you better find one. Because you and I are going to stand before God one day, and he's going to ask you and me and Nancy Hathaway and every other person that has breath, what did you do with your life? If you were here for the business meeting this year, you know we're going to get involved with Heart for Orphans. We're going to get involved with this group. There's a whole network of houses all throughout Ukraine. Nancy Hathaway is just a, a normal person that lives just up 64. No different from you and me, but she began to give her life to a cause. There's Now there's a whole network of houses that when kids come out of these orphanages that they can go into and learn a trade. They teach them about Christ. They've got six homes all throughout the Ukraine now and they're just going to continue to grow. It might be that God's whispering to you tonight. It might be that that's supposed to be your cause. 
Because sometimes our cause is to get along with somebody else who's got a cause, and we just begin to make a difference together. All right, come on, this is our last one. So we find Jesus in the garden tomb where the Easter story begins. He says to you and he says to me, set a course. He says to you, he says to me, set a course. John 19, 38 to 42, it says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and he took his body away. And Nicodemus also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. And then they took Jesus' body and they wrapped it in linen cloths with aromatic spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. And there was a garden in the place, come on, where he was crucified. God is helplessly intentional. Right there where Jesus gave his life for the sins of the world, there was a garden and it just so happened to be the garden where Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb that was waiting for his family. And he says, come on, I'm going to give that to my Lord. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. Come on, a new tomb was in the garden. John 20, 11 through 18, it says, But Mary stood outside facing the tomb crying, and as she was crying, she stopped to look into the tomb. If you've got your Bible, turn there. John chapter 20, I'm going to pick up in verse 11. It says, But Mary stood outside facing the tomb. She was crying, and as she was crying, she stood to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet, where Jesus' body had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? said that before myself. We have a joke in our household. Soon after we were married, my wife said to me, you didn't burp like that when we were dating. And I said, you didn't cry this much either. (laughs) Which now I know that we've been married for 15 years, that usually she's crying because of something that I did wrong because I didn't realize the first one about being a creator. So, right? Come on, men. If our wives are crying, it's because we've not followed the first tree. I get points for that. (laughs) Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them. I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, though she did not know it was Jesus. Come on, how many times has he stepped into your life and you didn't even know he was there? Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Supposing he was, come on, the gardener. She replied, sir, if you removed him, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. And Jesus says to her, Mary, oh, have you ever heard him say your name? Have you ever heard him say your name? Because he's saying your name tonight. Turning around, she said to him, in Hebrew, my teacher. He says, don't cling to me, Jesus told her, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go and tell my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. We find Jesus in the garden tomb. 
We found him in Eden where he says to us, be a creator. We found him in the Garden of Gethsemane where he says to you and me, have a cause. And we find him in the garden tomb and he says to you, he says to me, set a course. It's interesting, isn't it, that here in this conversation that he has, because he's helplessly intentional, the one thing that he says to Mary is, Mary, my course is set. I'm on my way to heaven. I know you're crying, I know that you're upset, and I know you're having a hard time imagining what life is going to be like without me, but oh, if you only knew, now I'm going to be everywhere all the time, just like I was before. But he was also saying to her, it's interesting, isn't it? In the text, it says, I'm going to my God, to your God. I'm going to my Father, to your Father. What's he saying to her? He's saying, Mary, set your course because you can go to be with me where I am. John 14, right? He says to the disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. You trust also in God, trust also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. And if I go to prepare a place for you, right? What does he say? I'm going to come back so that you can be with me where I am. Set a course. What if after you breathe your last breath, which we are all going to do, there is very little that is certain for us in this life, but that's one of them. Tomorrow is promise to none of us. The moment that we breathe our last, what if somehow, some way, we were able to have a conversation on the other side of death with someone who loved us as much as Mary loves Jesus, would we be able to look them in the eye and say, don't cry for me because I set my course and I am on my way to heaven. Will you be there with me? We find Jesus in the garden tomb and in churches all throughout the world on Easter weekend or reading in to this story and it's saying the same thing to them as it says to us, come on, I am going to heaven. Are you going to come with me? Are you going to come with me? This is where we get back to John 3.16. Come on, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Come on, you, we found Jesus in three gardens and we've heard him speak to us in three different ways and in each one of these gardens as he calls out to us, we have a decision that we're going to make. Are we going to be a creator with the words that we speak? Are we going to speak words of life into the people around us? We find him, come on, in the garden of Gethsemane and he says to us, what's going to be your cause? What are you going to give your life to? Are you going to live for something that's bigger than yourself? And here we find him in the garden tomb and he's asking you the question that he's asking me, will you be there? There with me. Will you set your course? You have a spiritual GPS in here. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon says that God put eternity in the hearts of all people. There is something inside of you. You feel it right now. And for some of you, come on, you're locked in. You know, as you look back into the story of your life, you find a moment where you made a vow of devotion to Jesus and heaven is promised to you. If this was you in the garden with Jesus, you would be able to say back to him, I'm not ready to be there yet, come on, but one day we're going to be there together. One day we're going to be there together. What would you say to him? We talked about Pastor Old Palmer formerly University Presbyterian Church out in Seattle, Washington, one of my favorite Bible teachers, he has this beautiful phrase. He says, have you ever put the full weight of your life on Jesus? Come on, it's a great phrase, isn't it? Putting the full weight of your life on Jesus. 
So we're coming out of the hockey game last night, right? We were there for about 14 hours. Hockey is a long sport, right? <laughs> By the end of the first two periods, they had rested just as much as they played. What kind of sport is that, right? 20-minute period, 20-minute break, 20-minute period, 20-minute break. Come on. So as we're leaving, I see this dad with his daughter. They can bend in ways when they're that age, right, that we can't bend anymore. It made my back hurt just looking at her. She, she formed an upside-down U in his arms, mouth open, drooling, right? She must have been about seven or eight years old, just out. And the full weight of her life was in her father's hands. She was just holding nothing back in a place of perfect sleep. I thought about this moment and that moment. I thought to myself, that's me in my father's hands. When I was 23 years old, I put the full weight of my life on Christ. And I'm just asking you tonight, what about you? Have you set your course? Have you set your course? Have you set your course? Some people are going to come and make some things ready for us. Come on, I know we're off the clock a little bit tonight. I'm going to ask you to do just three things. I'm going to talk to you just for a couple more seconds. And then I'm going to ask some of you maybe here because maybe tonight's one of the first nights you've ever heard him whisper your name. You've never heard him whisper your name before, but you felt it in a deep way tonight. We're going to give you an opportunity to respond to that. We're going to take communion together as a congregation here on Easter weekend. It's an open communion. You don't have to be a member of this church to share in it with us. But as the band plays in just a little while, we're all going to come up. But I want some people to be able to come first. You with me? I want some people to be able to come first. Maybe some people that have never tasted this cup have never eaten this bread, and we're going to let them take the first bite, have the first sip. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes with me right now. But just in the privacy of this moment, come on. Just in the privacy of this moment, as you look back into the story of your life, and you look back into the story of your life like I do, I look back to when I was 23 years old and I was riding down the Burnham Avenue in Richmond, Virginia, Eastgate Mall on the right in my 1984 Honda Prelude. And in that moment, come on, I put the full weight of my life on Jesus. Didn't understand everything that that meant. I didn't understand everything it was going to be, but I understood this, that for far too long, I'd held him at arm's length when he wanted to be the boss of my life and I needed him to be. Because I knew that it was only through him that I was going to have a life that would be restored with my father. You're here tonight, I'm telling you, some of your hearts, you feel it right now. You hear him whispering to you just like Mary heard his voice 2,000 years ago. I'm just asking you, just asking you, on this Easter weekend in 2012, when you look into the story of your life, is there a moment that you can point to and say, it was on that day I made a vow of devotion to Christ. On that day I put the full weight of my life on him. If you can't find a moment like that, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. Just going to ask you to raise your hand right where you're sitting. If you can't find a moment like that, come on. It's good. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry about what other people are thinking who are sitting next to you. You look into the story of your life. If you can't find a moment, 
Will you put the full weight of your life on him? I'm just asking you. Come on. Let that arm stretch up into the air. Come on, keep it up, because I want to pray for you. Come on, keep it up. Just keep it up. Just keep it up. Come on, I know it takes courage. I know it takes courage. Come on, there's some hands that are up. I'm just telling you. You can join into that, because I'm telling you, it feels awfully good. There's nothing like it in the universe. Father, I pray for every hand that's up right now. Oh, that they would hear you whispering their name. And that they, in every moment for the rest of their lives, that they would find themselves in a service just like this, that they would be able to say, it was on that night that I set a course for heaven. It was on that night I locked it in. And for I know that I'm going to be with him forever, for all eternity. All right, so the next thing I'm going to ask you to do, it's going to take some courage. I don't deny it. It's going to take some courage. I'm going to invite everyone to stand. Come on. Everybody stand. Come on, this bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us, and this cup represents his blood that was shed for, for you and for me. There's a great verse in Isaiah that says, Though my sins be as scarlet, they be white as snow, they be red like crimson, they be as, as a lamb's wool. So I'm just saying, if you popped your hand up tonight, right, the band's going to begin to play. I'm just going to invite you to be the first person to come. In fact, why don't we do it right now? Come on, if your hand was up. I know it takes some courage. Just come on. Be the first one to take a piece of that bread and to take that cup. Don't be bashful. I know, it takes courage. Are you going to come? Come on. You can do it. You can do it. As we begin to sing, come on. As we begin to sing, come on. It takes courage. Come on, it's good, Becca. It's good. That's good. Come on, let's play. We're going to worship together. Just as the band begins to play, you just make your way out of the seat. All of you. Come on, make your way out of the seat as it begins to play. You take that cup. You take that bread. And at some point in this song, you eat that bread. You, you drink that cup just on your own, in your own moment. And it's your way. It's your way of saying to Jesus, I've set my course. I've set my course. Come on, let's worship together. <laughs>